You may find this hard to believe, but 60 songs that explain the 90s, America's favorite poorly named music podcast, is back with 30 more songs and 120 songs total. I am your host, Rob Harvilla, here to bring you more crude musical analysis, poignant nostalgic reveries, crude personal anecdotes, and rad special guests, all with even less restraint than usual. Join us once more on 60 songs that explain the 90s, starting Wednesday, May 17th, on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio, he's also a Boston sports guy. It's Andy Greenwald! You trying to get me fired? No, man. Come What's on. up, man? It's Thursday. By the time this goes up, I think we might be tipping off Celtic Sixers. It's been a wondrous time here at The Ringer uh, in terms of team morale. I think yeah. um, interpersonal relationships are strong. Yeah. Uh, it's the Missoula piece we're talking about. Um, Andy, it's great <laughs> to see you. It's great to see Kaya. We haven't been in the studio doing a regular watch episode. Succession, it's, you know, it's like Succession's our wife, but this, the Thursday shows are our mistress, you know? There was so much to unpack. <laughs> in, and also, I'm a little worried that like we're just going to edit everything you just said. Yeah. Depending uh, how it goes at 4.30, 7.30 p.m. <laughs> Pacific time. No, today. no, no, no. We're going to let it rock. Uh, I was in Philly last week, so we weren't in the studio. It's great to see your face. Anything going on in Hollywood you want to talk about? That's pretty, it's pretty chill. So uh, we're probably not going to make this like strike pod talk, but no. Andy is still on strike. The WGA is still on strike. It's still yep. uh, an evolving situation. There's still like a lot of like news coming out though. I think we'll probably try and make strike talk digests as we go along. Maybe not necessarily like oh, a constant update of of labor negosh. Well, there aren't any negosh. Yeah. But I got to say, getting my steps in. That's You do look lean. I feel lean and mean. Yeah. I mean, it's there are worse things than just walking with your pals for four or five miles a day. Yeah. I enjoy that. Like writing? <laughs> oh, well, it's been a while. It's been a while. I do miss that. But also, I appreciate that so far, the strike has really allowed for people to strike differently. Have you, know, you been like, journaling? Um, and I can't comment on that without talking to <laughs> Chris Kaiser and the rest of the negotiating committee. Okay. But but it's interesting. You know, you know what? There are two types, Chris. Chris, mm-hmm. there are just two types of strikers. There's chanters and non-chanters. And I, I'm I, I think I'm not a chanter. That's okay. I think chanting is a younger person's game. Do you have cool signs? No. Oh, this I did want to mention this. The biggest mistake that I made in my personal strike journey was not being there like at first whistle after pens down, like signs up. Yeah. 
Because the smart people got there when all the signs were blank. They got their Sharpies and they just, just dropped mind grapes yeah. all over them. They, you know, and they emptied the, the pages of their rhyme book. They did. Yeah. And then I get there and now it's just a bunch of pre-written signs lined up against the fence. And you know, one thing about writers generally is just, we don't care. We'll hold up anybody's words. <laughs> so I strike less because I'm like, mm, nah, that's not really my vibe. Yeah, well, right. <laughs> that's not clever enough. Would I make, could I make that joke? But then I just end up grabbing the least, the least bad option. Gotcha. But mostly then pivot the like, on strike side, because the other side is just like, that's not me. It's not my soul up there. Let's talk a little bit. So for today, we're going to do Barry. We're going to do the new Apple show, Silo, the first two episodes of which are up on Apple TV. And then the third one goes up on Friday. We might do a little Top Chef. Mm. Uh, I'm dying to talk Hundo Foot Wave with you. I know ah. you're two behind me, but that's the most special and important thing that's on television to me right now. I love um, that show. I, isn't it? It's, it doesn't say anything good that I'm like, that's the one that makes, that makes me happy and it feeds me. And I'm not rewarding myself with it. So I'm like, I got I to gotta crush tape on all these other new premieres. It's become now like the thing I, I think I look forward to the most is to watch 100 Foot Wave with my wife and yeah. just let Philip Glass just piano tinkle me into a complete and total zen mind state. Uh, we maybe, we'll try to get Chris Smith to come on the show and talk about it, but I hope people are watching that. I, I will catch up because um, I love it. Before we get to Barry, mm-hmm. you know, two, two shows are ending on HBO. Barry in succession. It's mm-hmm. the end of an era. Mm-hmm. But when God closes a door, he opens a window. And then through the window comes Danny McBride, Steve Zahn, mm-hmm. Shea Wiggum, mm-hmm. Stephen Dorff, yep. Adam Devine, yeah. everybody, John Goodman. They're all coming through the window because Righteous Gemstones is coming back. Did you see the trailer for season three? Yeah, I did. I did. <laughs> I feel good about it. Yeah. I feel, I feel, I feel the fundamentals are strong. And it's really, it's really special that those fucking lunatics are just in South Carolina, just, just, just being locavores. You know I, what I mean? Uh... Giving us their own terroir. Like, <laughs> there is nothing about the, you know. You know when like some shows come back, like Succession, like good shows and bad shows, and they're like, oh, I wonder, I wonder how that show will respond to COVID. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like these are just dispatches from Danny McBride's fucking Mars, and I love it. He's assembled. Uh, a lot of my my passion points. Yeah, you know, monster trucks. Yep. NASCAR, smoking, Jesus, ACDC, and people giving each other the finger while participating in all of those activities. And Stephen Dorff. Yeah, and Stephen Dorff. <laughs> I mean, I can't believe you. <laughs> last but not least, um, I'm so excited that show is back. That's a great trailer. Uh, it's coming back in June. Mm-hmm. Did you see the Dune two trailer? Yeah. You ready for that? Dune, like tune, like I, I feel like there's the it's opportunity. It's Dune Part Two. Yeah, it's not Tune. You know, do you want to put like a two somewhere yes, in Dune? I kind of do, yeah, but I, I don't Can think you feel it works that, that coming way. from me. Tune is that what you want to make? It's it? not good. No, but that was just off the dome. Like I could, I got some free time. I feel like this, this is Dune Two colon. I got my Mwau Deeb swagger back. You know, it's like a lot of like worm riding and 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 holding the knife to your head and being like. I'm the prince who was promised. Like, this is this Look, is jacked up. I know more, I know better now than to bet against Denis Villeneuve. Did like, you ever bet against him? On FanDuel. <laughs> <laughs> I did. And I ended up calling one of those phone numbers because it did not go well for me. KS Gambling Hill? Um, I, it is kind of, I mean, I do think that, I loved the first one. I loved it. Mm-hmm. It is kind of amazing that it was a success. 
I mean, given the circumstances into which it was released, which is like, go to the theater at your own peril. But also the fact that as revealed by this trailer, like, all the juicy stuff is in the second movie. Yeah. Like, there, Zendaya didn't really speak in the first movie. She's in movie. a dream in the first movie. Yeah. And then this movie has, like, like swagged out worm surfing and fighting and, like, the messianic Campbellian whatever arc that people like in these Bald movies. Austin Butler. But it also has, it also has Flossie Pew. Yeah. Austin Butler in the, uh, I believe in the Sting part. Is that right? Yeah. Sting in the, yeah. You know. He's like, he's, he's basically the big bad of this. Is episode. he going to be doing it in the Elvis voice? We can only hope. He did not, I notably did not talk in this trailer. I just, I love it. And I, and I, I'm excited for it. Did you ever read the Dune books? No. Thank you. I, I have been accused of being a Dune book reader before. <laughs> the truth is, you remember? In what context? I mean, late Some night. guy's got you pinned up Avenue against a. the locker. Yeah. Admit it, you love spice. Fucking. I'm like, <laughs> guilty as charged. Carolyn cuisine, whatever. Um, do you? Did your elementary school or middle school library like? You remember in school libraries? There would be you know books on the wall because it was a library. But my, I remember that like the mass market paperbacks would mm-hmm. be like in a little spinner rack. Oh yeah, and yeah, it was also like the way like when you, they used to have those at like drugstores. Sure, but I mean, I just have this very intense memory of like being in. I guess middle school library. It would be super weird if it was like the kindergarten library of my school. And, you know, one of a couple of the books were like, you know, Worm Children of Dune. Yeah. And the covers were horrifying. Like, it was horrifying. It was like two giant worms in space, like kissing. Yes. Or maybe like, that wasn't Dune. <laughs> that was your personal fanfic. That was actually the uh, sixth grade journal that got you sent Lady to the Chatterley's Lover edition that I got. But, um, but I, I got freaked out. So I was, no, I never read any of that. I just, you know what I think it is, is uh, I'm feeling really good about movies right now. I watched this film, uh, Artifice Girl, which I hmm. definitely don't think you should watch. Thank you for but, that. But uh, it's like sort of a sci-fi, societal horror kind of film that uh, is available for streaming. And I was like, damn, this is fucking awesome. You know, I haven't seen Guardians 3, but I've enjoyed my time at the movies this year. And then I'm I'm so ready for Oppenheimer. Yeah. Are you ready for Oppenheimer? In what way? Like, or is it something that you're looking forward to? Yeah, I like male actors of Hollywood. I'd like to go see all of them in one movie, just like bang it out. No, I am excited. Bang it out that. like nuclear fission? Bang yeah, it out? yeah, just like two space worms kissing in a mushroom cloud, right? Yeah. With also with Matt Damon. No, I'm very, I'm very excited for that movie. I think it has a little bit. The trailer. I heard Sean and Amanda talking about it. They had some uh, some questions. The trailer is a little Ford versus Ferrari for what they're building, you yeah. know, little little nuke. Uh, but I have a feeling like it's not going to be, the film will not be the trailer, just the way Dunkirk was not really, yeah, I, like, about hope, you I, know? I am really interested in this movie because I, call me crazy, I like it when Chris Nolan makes movies about people and, like, in the world uh-huh. and not about giant, I, you know, not moving backwards or Batman. Sure. I, I prefer, I'm excited about this for that reason. I do think that the trailer kind of is giving a little bit of the theatrical game away in the sense that like Universal spent so much on this mm-hmm. and it's just like because they saw an opportunity because Nolan got mad at his longtime studio home Warner Brothers because when everything was being dumped yeah, on on Max. on Max. But then we got Tenet. So it's kind of that which I you know saw on the back of a Delta seat and really moved my soul. <laughs> but like I, this I feel like this has to be the, one of the great American films for to justify the price tag of it. And so they, they, I think the marketing might not be in line with the movie he wanted to make. Gotcha. That's all I'm saying. Um, can I 
flip this to you for a second. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're pivoting to movies, which is great for I'm not predominantly pivoting to movies. TV I just pod. thought we could just take a little trailer town trip. I think that this podcast is the small picture. You know, I mm-hmm. think that's what we do. I, I wanted to let you know about a different media that all eyes are on. This is, a, this, is, this is where I'm at these days. Okay. Which is, are you aware that tomorrow is the release of The Legend of Zelda, Tears of the Kingdom? Yeah, so this is a big deal, right? This is a huge deal in my house. Tears of the what? The Kingdom? Kingdom. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This is the sequel to Legend of Zelda, Breath of the Wild. 29 million copies sold, Chris. Uh-huh. Pretty fucking amazing thing. That this is the only thing that my daughters care about now. Definitely only them. I'm not, you know, I'm agnostic. I am not counting the hours. It does seem like whenever I talk to you, you're like, we're just firing up some video games over here. Let me stop you. We're firing up video game. Okay. Just one video game. Have they ever seen the original like Nintendo Legend of Zelda? Yeah, they they look at me the way Connor Roy looks at panhandlers uh when I show them (laughs) like this was Legend of Zelda. They're like, oh, dad. Right. That's terrible. (laughs) Like they... One of the things that they say that I never expected to hear in a conversation is, was it 2D? Like, that, they ask that a lot. Do they understand a lot about, like, the visual kind of rendering of video games? Yeah, they understand pixels and, you know, the processing power. But it is truly, it's, it's a fucking amazing game. I imagine the sequel is as well, because you can run around with swords and fight monsters, but also you can just bake cakes. Oh, so it's kind of like Animal Crossing, but also, a game, like, like, it has, like, a little bit of, of like a fight element to it. Yeah, and it's also just incredibly emo in that like it's super beautiful and you can just run through the woods and run with foxes and then maybe hunt the fox if you get mad at it. It's it's a big deal. It's that, just it's a different vibe that I usually look for from my video games. Well, when do you you just are you just you're just still like a FIFA guy, right? Yeah, I mean I got Red Dead Re- Redemption. Right. And that was cool, but I think that like I've moved on from like they like my wife plays some independent like mystery games sometimes like on her iPhone and stuff. That's fun. Uh, but I have not played anything like where like Red Dead is probably like the last thing I've played that's like a game game. I try. I was gonna play Last of Us and then I was like, yeah, it's all right. You know, there's a show. Yeah, <laughs> I was just gonna get ready for it. Um, I didn't actually literally was like, I don't really want to know what's gonna happen because yeah. like, you know I, I'm curious about how the show executes, and then. I'll just never recapture the feeling of like smoking camel lights and playing Max Payne in my apartment. You know, that's just. Like I think for your long term heart health, that's probably good that you can't. Do go you back remember to the that? part of Max Payne where your character is in a dark room trying to find yes. the sound of a baby? <laughs> no, I do. But you want to like set the scene like when you say find the sound okay, of a baby. Max that's Payne is like you're voice. like you basically play like a vigilante cop. In Max Payne, so also, I don't know. It's a, it's a pun. Like yeah. the name, right? Like you, there's maximum pain experienced by this guy because yeah. I think his family has been killed in the beginning of it, right? Right, but yet there's a sound of a baby. Well, it's, he's being haunted by it. Yeah. So you're in this dark room and yeah. like the goal of the level is to find the where the sound is coming from. Yeah. We didn't have great sound speaker setups back in 2002, no. you know? So I was just like sitting in Brooklyn, you know, all the windows open. Yeah, I got a burner in my mouth mm-hmm. and I'm trying to find this baby. And like, I, I basically gave up on video games after that. Because you were haunted by the baby or because you never found it? I never found it, honestly. Wow. I think I cheat. I went to IGN, like where I bought like a GameStop magazine and figured out what the cheat code was. Where's to, the baby? <laughs> that The baby code. 
this doesn't seem again like this. Maybe I was never meant for fatherhood. You there's know? a lot of things from that era where we were just like, I guess this is what being in your 20s is like. And yeah. you look back on it now and I'm like, oh, that's real bad. It's dark. Like that's toxic yeah. shit. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, Do you in, know it's also toxic? Yeah. Barry. Okay, you win. I was going to be like, Chris, I found two babies. <laughs> and now we will rid Hyrule of Ganon. Um, Let's talk a little bit about Barry. This show has sort of gotten short shrift from us because we dedicate the Sunday show to succession and then Thursdays are usually a grab bag and we've been traveling. So we haven't really gotten to check in very much on what is, whether you love it, whether you don't love it, you have to acknowledge is one of the most audacious final seasons of a television show that I can possibly, like I can remember. Who's not loving it? Bring him in here. Um... So give me your give me your feelings on it. So we've we've if for, for people that are not current on Barry, we're going to be spoiling up to this this most recent episode that aired on Sunday, which was three, two, one. A spoiler. It was a time jump episode. Yeah, time jump happened in the pre the episodes previous to this. The, this was episode five. We get a legacies. peek at at mm-hmm. at, uh, at Sally and Barry's life later in life. Mm-hmm. Um, eight years. Eight years, and they have a son. And for a second, maybe you're like, oh, is this a dream sequence or something? But in fact, it is. It is like that we've jumped ahead in time. Mm-hmm. And um, this episode uh, put, put me in my darkest place. Back in those Max Payne days. Yeah, I was looking for the baby, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's interesting to watch this show and Succession end and watch the way they're creators are interacting with their creations Mm -hmm. as they wrap things up. I don't think either show is traditional in the sense of like, when you were watching Breaking Bad come to a conclusion, there was the overriding feeling that there were certain thematic things that needed to happen, but there was also a tremendous amount of affection Mm -hmm. that the creators had for their creations. And that's possibly why Better Call Saul started is because they didn't want to leave this world and there were people that they wanted to interact with. And it was just like, you know, Jesse was going to need to have the ending that he needed to have because we had all grown to love him so much and feel for him. And I do not get that feeling from Barry. No, nor do you get it when you hear Bill Hader, uh, whether it's he's talking to our buddy Sean or just in the press. I mean, he stopped doing press as part of the writer's strike, yeah. but when he was doing press, he does not have a lot of empathy. Or I mean, he has empathy as a performer and a creator, but he does not have a lot of, well, actually... Barry is the misunderstood hero of his own story about his character, about his creation. I think the thing that really got me about this episode was the Sally part, the Sally piece. Um, It was... She wasn't ready to coach the team. A rookie (laughs) head coach. The problem with Sally is when Will Hardy got poached. Look, we all like the idea of it. Yeah. But she wasn't ready. The transformation of what happens to Sally... And having not seen any subsequent episodes yet, like, I don't know where this is going. And obviously, mm-hmm. at the end of the, the episode that aired on Sunday, Clark turns back into Barry and he's like, I have to go kill Gene Cousineau, who's now appeared at Warner Brothers and is trying to <laughs> involve himself in the the film about mm-hmm. the events of Barry. But the episode of Sally interacting, like being in, like, where are they supposed to be? Do, do we have an, a sense of like what state they're in? It doesn't really say. It, it, I thought it was... I thought it was Oklahoma because Bill's from Oklahoma. Yeah, or it was Nevada or something. Yeah. But it, it, then there's a... She's, she's got a southern, a southern accent. accent so yeah. we don't really know. Um, either way, there's not a ton of trees where they are. No, it's, it's a little flat. And the idea that this person is still performing, like mm-hmm. that she is like working on a character mm-hmm. and that she is playing a character all day long, 
But then that she is also like turned into a full-blown alcoholic because of what her life has become. And she's with this guy who is also doing the same thing he was doing at the beginning of this show, which is disassociating to the point where he can just be like, I'm just a working actor now. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I, I, I think it's, uh, it's astonishing. Like, obviously, the filmmaking is just kind of like on another level for television. But I can't remember being in the throes of something like this and be like, I have absolutely no idea where this show is going. I, I mean, I, I think the audacity of this show is is jaw-dropping. And I think that the aesthetics of the show are, are astonishing. I don't want to like... I, I, I threw like a, a loose heater last week where I was like, this is the best show on television. Yeah, you did. This is the, I did. And I kind of stand by it, but I, I want to <laughs> explain a little bit more. Like, it's... I, look, it's look, just words. The movie theater's on fire, okay? <laughs> so I brought some marshmallows. Um... In a way, this feels to me like the dream of what the last decade was supposed to give us from television Yeah, in a lot of different ways. And what I mean specifically is this is auteurist television. This is Bill Hader um, creating a character and then an ensemble of characters and then a world and then eventually taking over and directing it so that the aesthetics are completely aligned and coming from his mind. Mm -hmm. As a fan of people figuring out their own creativity it is so exhilarating to watch the show because, you know, after I think it was after the first season, we had like Bill and Henry Winkler came on this pod. And, you know, anyone who we don't know him more than that one interaction, but people who have talked about him or heard him talk, like he's an extremely modest person, but mm-hmm. he is a hardcore film guy. And he saw this not as an opportunity to just like to make money or extend his celebrity, but to all of the little things that were itching in his mind, like how far can he scratch them? Well, he had said that he how- wanted to make movies and he didn't think anybody would let him make a movie. Yeah. So he started making this TV show so that he could eventually direct enough so that he could make movies. And, and it's... Not that it's as simple as that, but... I'm no, but, but, but what he's doing with it is not... is more than a stepping stone towards movies. It is it is an absolute celebration of this strange, prestige, maybe already past moment when TV could become something not better than movies, not replacing movies, but an extension of a cinematic point of view, right? Where you could, you could infuse long-term character work with the stakes, with the bold choices, with the, the artistic decision-making of mm-hmm. movies, of cinema. And I was thinking a lot also about, like, think about where this fucking show began, where what we were raving about was the, A, how funny it was. Yeah. Darkly funny, but funny, but also savage in its satire of a particularly pompous balloon known as Hollywood and acting. And also not acting in the sort of noble sense, but acting in the, I'm gonna, I don't have any money, but I'm going to give all my money to someone who's going to tell me how to become famous. Right. I'm going to do monologues based on movies to get into movies because that'll fix me. Not necessarily with judgment, but with like, this is a thing. This is absolutely a thing. And it's a way for people to escape who they are, who they think they are, or what they don't want to deal with. And I'm thinking about like great shows of the last 10 years and like what their attitude towards change and pushing things forward. And I would always, especially in like in the half hour space, celebrate one of the all-time greats, Parks and Rec, being like, you know what? Mike Sure never took his foot off the gas. Like it always kept, first she was going to be on city council and she's off of it. And he was just like, he wouldn't just let it rest mm-hmm. because life doesn't work like that. And he also wanted to see Yeah, I mean, how... like, it could have been like what Mr. Mayor was. Yes. You know, which is also a really good show and very funny. 
but it was like he's the mayor and he's never in trouble it's a, it's and he's a situation. Just, yeah, and, and here's it's the like, comedy. But mayor, like, yeah, Parks and Rec was what would happen if you like flipped this show three or four times, and then obviously that was something that was really appealing to him because of what he did with Good Place. And this, yes, and this, so it was about like let's we believe in what we've created here and let's see how elastic it really is. We're going to stretch it and stretch it. The thing that he's done here. We're so far past that opening convention, but it's so true to what it always was in a way that I often, the conversations that this show should be in, in terms of its like emotional storytelling and morality are more along, are more aligned with Breaking Bad and The Sopranos, honestly, Mm -hmm. because this show is at root about the pervasive corrosiveness of violence. And this idea that even we as like TV watchers or comedy fans are like, oh, well, it's going to be silly when the killer goes into an audition. Yeah. Every single thing this man, Barry, touches is ruined because of the violence in yeah. him and the unexamined trauma in him. And that's just been the fucking guiding principle of a show that is still often the funniest thing week to week. I, it, I, I just, I'm, I know I've just been monologuing and it's weird to end a monologue by saying I don't have words for it, but I kind of don't have words well, for it. Well, because I think that your point though about this like, dream of what TV could be. I, what would you say, if you had to say, like, over the course of the last 10 years when we've been doing this together, yeah. what would be another moment where you were like, the ground is shifting? Like, this is something truly fresh and unique and original and, like, this is the kind of thing that you would hope to see in cinemas, like, when you were in, in the 60s or the 70s or in independent cinema in the 90s and now we're getting it on a week-to-week basis in... Fleabag, like Atlanta, like what are you thinking when you're yeah, thinking about those? Those two are the last kind of like, and I think they actually premiered the same year as Barry. Like I think those were that was a 2018 or something. Mm-hmm. Like that, there was a pretty thrilling moment. Well, it was also like a weird moment where I think, despite the success of things like Game of Thrones, there was a real lionization of like the creator and yes, of like which which we I want to be in business with this person who seems to have a very distinct vision and it kind of you know. And you know, I I don't want to go down that path of like overrating. I think. I think TV, just broad strokes, isn't this, mm-hmm. you know, it, because when you hit your wagon to one incredibly creative engine, you're going to get one very specific story that often has a I think when we talk about date. Silo, we'll be talking about something that's a lot more like a traditional TV Very show. different than this. Yeah. yeah I, I, I think that those two are the, are the best comps for like, oh, this is, oh my God, like month to month, let alone year to year, we could get something that feels absolutely new. I still... You know, when we were doing the best stuff for last year and even the year before, like Reservation Dogs is still so high up on every list that I do. And I think about it constantly just because it, it, again, it's just like, I'm going to show you something entirely new. I know what it is and you're going to get it. Mm -hmm. You're going to get what these place, what this place is, what it feels like, what it smells like, who's here, why it's funny, even though it feels terrible or vice versa. I love that kind of thing. But I wouldn't compare it to what Barry is, is because Barry is just week to week the most cinematic show now, I think. And it's not just the consistency of what Hater's doing. It's his choices he's making. Yeah. Like the way he shot the scene, the wood, the botched assassination scene by two podcasters, I might add, was <laughs> absolutely thrilling and uncomfortable and surprising. Uh-huh. The way he moves the camera, where he does these sweeps, right? Where it's like on someone's face and they say, what? Or, you know, it swings to the other side. The way he is still but laughing. But then they also do like lampoon that kind of stuff. Like when, when Hank mm-hmm. and Crystal Ball are doing the speech at the round table unreal. at Dave and Buster's and they keep having to run to catch up with the camera. Yeah. I mean, I think this show, 
I, I guess, I think it was the beginning of the third season when we were podcasting about it. And it had been a very long time off the air due to COVID. Yeah. And, and I was like, I don't know. I, I, the rhythm is off to me. And I was wrong. I just needed to, a few rotations to like get into the groove of it. And the very specific choices that Hader makes week to week on the show about what's funny and what's horrific and, vice, and, and, and sometimes it's the opposite of what you'd expect feels more real and true to me, you know, than more quote unquote realistic shows. Yeah. Because it, it is so, this is the anti-AI show in every way. Well, one of the things that I've noticed, I think as, as like TV media kind of consolidates around, you know, a half a dozen to 20 shows a year that it covers very, very passionately and mm -hmm. very, very deeply is that those shows sometimes inevitably have a self-awareness of what people say about it. Mm -hmm. I think this is happening to Ted Lasso to some extent where it's like, there's just like an obvious like awareness of why people are coming to watch this show what we're pushing against, how we acknowledge what the core beliefs of this show are mm -hmm. or whatever. And it it almost feels like it's like what's happening as a as far as plot on Ted Lasso is sort of secondary to what Ted Lasso the show believes in about the world. You know? It's it's mission. It's yeah. it's you're right. And I think that that's you could say that that's even happened to succession. You know what I mean? To some extent, where I think like there is certainly a feeling of like uh, succession knows what it does well and it knows what people respond to in its show. Yeah. And so I think one it, of the things that, I mean, it's definitely like doing something at a very high level. I'm not su suggesting it's like playing the hits. Not right? to interrupt you, but I also think that there's something that is essentially TV about that in mm -hmm. the best possible way, which is, my God, people love it when Tom and Greg are roasting each hijinks, other. yeah. And also we love writing for it. It gives everyone involved pleasure. That's not wrong. Yeah. That is That is the lifeblood of TV. So with Barry, it's almost like a, I, I was thinking about this because of the title card, right? You know, when they cut and it's just like the red lettering bar Barry. And when the early seasons, I'd have to go back to actually do like a, an accounting of this, but I felt like more often than not, it would cut to the title card and usually it would have some like ironic music playing. It was the horns. Yeah. And it would be almost like, that's Barry. It was almost yeah. like a sitcom, you know what I mean? And mm -hmm. it, it had like a kind of, kind of like comedic humorous bent to it. And now when Barry flashes on the screen, the title card, it's like, welcome to The Shining. It's a ton of bricks. Yeah. It's, I mean, and there is so much despair and distress and humanity in Sarah Goldberg's performance as, Sarah, mm -hmm. as Sally, you know. And there is an incredible artistic economy to the way that the show communicates it it is masterful in the half hour. You know, it, it is, it's interesting, I think, that the three shows we mentioned as being the most elastic and the most exciting and the most like, aesthetically engaging are all half hours. Because mm -hmm. you can't, and Reservation Dogs, so four shows, you can't relax. You don't know what it's going to be. It doesn't feel, it feels weird. You know, it's like, who put this tragedy in my comedy? And vice versa. There's something, but, but it also forces them to make these, it doesn't force them, it allows them the chance to make these wild swings and land them, right? Like, to get Sally in one episode from being back home with her family to being back in L.A., to becoming Jean Cousineau, to realizing that the only time she's ever felt quiet in one part of her brain was when an absolute psychopath had a gun pointed in the direction of whoever was coming toward her. Yeah. It's balletic to get there. 
and it's fucking bold as shit. And then to realize that the two of them have wound up in hell. In a yeah. hell, in a, in a, a hell that they were always already in, yeah. and that their arrangement wasn't love but was recognition, right? And so we end up in this time jump. And so I, we could talk specifically about it. I mean, I thought the week before, it takes a psycho, which now once you saw the time jump, was kind of a finale of that moment <sighs> yeah. and what it did with Hank and Cristobal and the transfer. I mean, Anthony Corrigan's performance alone, like that, should be the headline. Yeah, most times I think you that the, the, show. the the achievement of that Hank character. To do is essentially the achievement of Barry is to take something that's so blatantly comic and broad and seems almost like kind of like a writer's room kind of like, you know, what would be funny is if this guy, you know, like, and to have that and to consistently like keep up like all of the the battles between the Colombians and the Chechenians over the years and like the sort of North Hollywood crime underworld, Mm -hmm. like, is somehow still part of it and like this whole sand plot that culminates with this like stunning assassination and, and yeah and through Cristobal's the auditory POV mm-hmm. right it's horrifying I mean it is I mean comedy is the most subjective thing of all right this is not an original idea but we have now like someone put the spinal tap into Hater, mm-hmm. and this is everything of I think of who he is and what made him right of growing up in a kind of strange, I don't mean it pejoratively, but unexpected place. It's not our experience, right? Growing up in Oklahoma, being a film kid and then kind of, and having stage fright and then being one of the funniest and best impressionists of a generation and yeah. one of the most essential SNL players. It's clear that in his life as a complete person, comedy and silliness is inextricable from from drama and tragedy, right? And like into the heavier things. And so we're just getting this raw download of that week to week. It's really moving just on a human level, I think. But then it's just incredible that he makes these decisions that you are powerless to stop. So that moment at the end of episode four, when, as you said, like, is this a dream? I I still think there were probably people, maybe people listening to this podcast who were like, well, they're going to undo that, right? Like, it wasn't really a time jump. Yeah, I mean, and and in some ways her calling out his name Barry in the house and him immediately switching from this like oh in five because in some ways like what he's doing in that episode is like he's more committed to the role than Sally is you know like he's transformed into this guy Clark he's like yeah and he is he is essentially controlling like the the world you know and he's deciding what his son is going to learn and he's deciding what his son's going to do and he's teaching him these it's, things that he wishes somebody had taught him it's so dark though it's it, so it, fucked up it, 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 the kid thing I, I i do i want to touch on too and this is what made i mean five was a really gnarly watch for a lot of reasons even though it also had comedy in it because it's still buried I mean, the little kid breaks his neck playing little league this, like that whole montage <laughs> that they made of horrific fatal little league injuries I feel like you, like they thought that was really funny. I think it's really funny. And it funny. is funny, yeah. but it's also <laughs> fucked. But um, there's a thing, like, again, I'm sorry. I'm yelling fire in the crowded theater. Many things can be good at the same time in a lot of different ways. And we are it's, in a... This is your thing now. But we you, are, you, you fucking love something or you hate it. It's okay. I love, I love a lot of things. I'm going to compare it to something that I love, which is succession. But the, even succession, for all of its... It gets out way in front of its skis with some of the emotional stuff and 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 figures it out. Finishes the slalom. I I shouldn't have done a ski metaphor. The run. Thank you. Yeah. Um. You you 
been to the Olympics? I've never skied before, but I, I no, do watch the Winter Olympics. Okay, yeah. more than I do. Well, Alberto Tomba. I, I, I played the Winter Olympics on the Commodore 64. <laughs> Remember that? I do. Um, succession keeps the, 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 the emotional violence centered in the adult children, right? Like Kendall's kids aren't on screen that much. No. And so, because if they were, every episode would actually be a referendum on what he's doing to them. And it allows us to live in his space of like, I'm a hero, I'm not touching them or whatever. Barry's not doing that. Nope. Not only... No, Barry and Sally chose to have a child. And, and absolutely codify their rancid, fucked up thing. Yeah. And he's just a boy named John who wants to play baseball, who has grown up in this place with his parents lying about everything and sometimes sleeping in the bathtub. Yeah. You can't look away from that. And the show doesn't ask you to look away from it. This is a show where the previous episode where Gene Cousineau shot his son. And we don't know how that resolved. Yeah, all we know is that Gene Cousineau left the country for eight years. He brought, he was bringing him Coral Tree Cafe (laughs) and he shot him, right? Like, I just saying that like, Many, many shows of this generation of like, we can do anything on TV. We can be bold storytellers and risk takers. They come right up to the precipice of being like, violence corrodes and corrupts everything, even blameless children. But then it's just like, but we're not really going to tell you that story because we also want you to root for Walter White. Yeah. We want to have it both ways a little bit. We're not going to really focus on what the next decade's going to be like for Walt Jr. after the show, right? Right. They're very different. Tough Google, you know? (laughs) Barry's doing it. Yeah. Barry's doing it. And it's, you can't, kind of can't look away. Two things I think that really like just pile-drived me into concrete were Barry and Sally both on their laptops with their headphones on. Every night. And her watching her nemesis's show and watch her like go to the White House and become this huge star, Darcy Carden. And Barry getting red-pilled about Abraham Lincoln and <laughs> Gandhi and stuff. And just the two of them with like, like in this living room with their laptops the on their laps. Yeah. yeah. And then also... Uh, Is it, it would have been different if Sally was playing like a mystery game on her iPhone. <laughs> and, I, and you were just Googling I was, like Max I was watching Payne Baby Solve. <laughs> I was like Joe Missoula rotations. <laughs> um, and then uh, Sally drinking a quart of vodka while on the phone with Barry about what they taught, he taught her child that day. Hey, what do you guys want for dinner? Dude. <laughs> I, I also think, you know, and there are these little things that... Those sh- things, are that, that, really, that really got to me. The yeah. show can be more than one thing. And it's like, oh, it's about how silly acting is. But then also, the project of Barry is about Bill Hader being like, I fucking love these performers. And mm-hmm. I'm going to give them these opportunities to do well, things. Well, because it no would have been possible. They could have tried to do what I think other, like, they could have tried to My Blue Heaven it, where it's just like, Barry and Sally have a white picket fence, and right. like, he's a respected man of the community, and she's, you know, the PTA leader. And it's like, no, like, these two people come out of their experience and find themselves literally in like a, a desert of their own making. Yeah, because the emotional valence of the show is always true. Do criminal underlords and overlords meet at Dave and Buster's? And like, you know what? I can't say. Sure. Just like, just like Connor Roy, North Korea. We don't know. We don't know. <laughs> we just don't know. We just don't know. But is this the way people behave to each other and where they end up? Yeah. 
And what I mean about the performances is that what he does respect is Sarah Goldberg, right? Like, she can do this mm-hmm. all the way through. It's, he's, not, he's not playing, f- playing faves with Barry. You know what I mean? Like, that Barry's somehow okay. He's seeing that through. And what he's doing for Stephen Root, what he's doing for Robert Wisdom, what he's doing for Briarpatch alum Charles Parnell in a great post-Top Gun cameo role. You know, he just... Anthony Corrigan. Like, he loves these actors. Yes. And, and uh, he, Spencer Grenice, who's the guy who, who plays Bevel yeah. in the diner. Amazing. Yeah, what a get. What, what a get for all of them. <laughs> he loves these actors, and he's giving them these chances. And it, I, I don't know. I just... You know what, Chris? I support the project. It's got my too. full-throated endorsement. How, how many more episodes are left of Barry? Three? I believe there are three. Okay. There are three. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Do you want to talk about the show Silo on Apple Television Plus? I do. Okay. This is a show that I recommended to Andy. So mm-hmm. it comes from Graham Yost, who is a hugely acclaimed and accomplished uh showrunner creator who worked notably for me unjustified he worked for you unjustified no, he worked notably to me he worked unjustified which is one of my favorite shows i prefer the other version yeah. but continue i i, I no, he also wrote speed yes yeah is, he's that's a cool look he's he's got some credits can you imagine if you just walked around town in the 90s and, and they're just like, like what do you, you what did you what do you do I wrote speed. Yeah. It's like, I, it's better than I saved Latin. It's incredible. <laughs> um, so this is a uh, show based on a novel by Hugh Howley. I don't know if, I think it's a series. The first book of the book that this is based on is called Wool. It's directed, at least the first few are directed by Martin Tildum, who did Theory of Everything, I believe. Imitation Game? Imitation Game. My bad. And uh, Passengers? Passengers. Oh. Tough, tough hang. Did you see that movie? Uh, no one did. But no, no disrespect. You know, things happen. Uh, and so this is a show about however many years in the future, it's a little bit unclear, society lives underground in a giant silo. Uh, we don't know if it's all society. We do not. There is a, society. a society lives underground. If, it, if I may, we do not know who built the silo. We don't. And we don't know what's wrong outside of the silo mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. what they've got is a couple of windows into what looks like a kind of nuclear wasteland. 
And the idea is there's some some rules baked into the old silo, and we're going to talk about the first two episodes now. So spoilers for that if you haven't seen it. But essentially, uh, it's a very like clockwork. Everything is sort of well run society because there are these rules that everybody has to follow. Mm-hmm. It's a vertical kind of that always goes habitat well. where it's essentially like a giant stairwell mm-hmm. with these levels. And you've got like porters yeah. running up and down the stairs. Guess where the lower class people live? In the, the bottom. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, like essentially the thing to know is that if you say you want to go outside of the silo, if you say you want to leave the silo, like your decision must be honored. And there is like a ritual that you go through where you can clean the cameras so that it can continue yeah. to see outside. But there is a small like like rung of this society where that sort of starts to question like why are we down here what is outside what happened before and trying to sort of put together a collective memory one of the best details of the show is that those who do choose to go outside and clean this is like must see tv for everyone everyone watches them go yeah, they get together and then they then all of a sudden Sunday their image football. gets better of the sort of cracked Corbett mccarthy wasteland outside and then they all watch whoever that person is take a few stumbling steps and then collapse. Yes. And then they watch their bodies just lie there for the rest of eternity. Yeah. So I would say one of the things uh, that is notable about this series is that in two episodes, it essentially has three stars. It has three main characters. And three starts yes. as well. Yeah. So why don't you talk a little bit about that? Well, do you just, I mean, objectively, it's doing some interesting and challenging things. Yeah. It is trying to do... On one hand, you could feel like the pitch for this show was very much pivoting off of Lost and that what if whole show was Hatch? Mm -hmm. It is also trying to accomplish something that was challenging in a pre-streaming prestige era, which is sell you on an entire world and then also some characters. Mm -hmm. So that the show begins with uh, David Oyewolo as the sheriff of the silo. The... Story. It begins with him in, I don't know if it's the present, but it begins with him saying he would like to go outside. We then flash back to two years previously, and we track the last year of his life with his wife, mm-hmm. played by Rashida Jones. We learn that uh, birth control and children are regulated, and that they've been given permission to have one year to try to have a baby. They are unsuccessful. This sparks some of her own suspicions about everything and ends up with her leaving. Yep. Someone she crosses paths with dies. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we're introduced to, this is sort of in the third timeline now, the interregnum, the two years between Rashida leaving and David leaving, Sheriff leaving. We're introduced to Rebecca Ferguson, the third star of the show, as a super buff engineer who has a story to tell, maybe, about what goes on down below. And the IT guy or computer guy who fell to his death. So yeah. it is a massive world building. It is a... It's two hours to get to Rebecca Ferguson as the star of the show and the hero of the show. And she plays somebody named Juliet. Right. And it takes two episodes to sort of like fully kind of become her show. And I would say that the reason why I wanted to talk to you about this show is that I think one of the things that we bump up against when we have huge world building sci-fi leaning or fantasy leaning shows that we don't often like go down is because uh, to talk about them on an episode to episode basis, you got to get like really, really, really in the weeds because this is a very like plot heavy show, Mm -hmm. right? And it's also like a mystery box show because there are certain questions that the show 
characters do know the answers to, but we have not found out yet. And then there are show, it, questions that the characters don't know the answers to that we also haven't found out yet. So there's a lot of like, when are they going to find out the inevitable reveal of like, what's the silo? Where are they? When are they? What's, you know, what, who are the people in the judicial committee that seem to be controlling what they can and can't do? Mm-hmm. So we don't typically talk about shows like this. One of the other reasons why I think it is, is that there's like, I love going back to this over and over again, so forgive me, but it's this um, Seth Rogen story that he tells on this show called Off Camera with Sam Jones. Sam mm-hmm. directed the uh, Jason Isbell doc that we, mm-hmm. that we do at HBO. And Seth Rogen's telling him about the writing of Superbad, and he's telling him about tips that he got from like Amy Pascal and Robert Town about screenwriting. And it was basically, you give people plot but what you to, to bring them in, but what you're really doing is telling them story. And like plot yeah. would be... Uh, all the mechanics of this story, like the little narrative steps that Andy and I just talked about. The story would be, you know, these people who find out that like everything that they're being told is a lie and what they need to do is like think for themselves and and take this huge leap of faith. Now, I don't necessarily find the story that like particularly compelling. You know, it's like something that we've seen different parts of. But every once in a while with one of these shows, the plot just gets me. Like the plot just gets to me and I'm like, yeah. I'm just, I just gotta, I gotta find out what's up with the silo, you know? And I think part of the reason why I'm bought in on this is it takes two hours to get to this. Beck Ferguson is awesome. She's always awesome. Uh, now, most people know her mostly from Mission Impossible and that's why it's really cool to see her essentially by the end of the second episode become the sheriff of the silo. Well, Dune, people know her from too. Yeah, and Dune, She's really right. good in Dune. Yeah. But it's a central performance that just takes a couple of hours to become central. And I think that that is a classic TV problem right now where it's like it's like 10 minutes of banter at the top of a podcast. It's like you could just tell us... And we're... I'm not... I'm not no, casting the stones. But it's like if you just started with Sheriff Rebecca Ferguson... Yes. It, it would be pretty cool. There's so much work, so much digging to get to the core of the thing that's interesting here. We're not starting with one person's struggle or one person... We're, we're starting with... This happened. But before that, this happened. But what you really need to know about what happened to him was this. Uh-huh. And then underneath all of that What's, is Where does the that story. compulsion come from? Do you think it's because it's adapting a novel and novels I, obviously are expansive? I think that there is an over-reliance on underlying IP and a slavish devotion to that. I think that there is a type of world building that is possible in expansive multi-volume book series that does not really work with television, despite what people think it's being a one-to-one. We can just yeah. mine this. For sure. I also think that, broadly speaking, and I, I want to double down on that, like there are exceptions to this. Apple, as a content maker and studio, is making a ton of stuff. And some of it we think is great, like um, uh, Slow Horses, which is also an adaptation of a book series. Mm-hmm. Some of it is interesting, some of it is fine. But if you could extrapolate one thing, not extrapolations, if you could extrapolate one thing from what they seem to be in the business, what their business seems to be, it does seem to be world creation. I wonder if that flatters the company ethos in a way. Sure. That like Apple is a paradigm shifter. We will give, we will take you places with our technology. Or if it has to do with, and I am, actually, I want to be clear, I'm 100% speaking out of my ass here. This is just speculating. I don't know. I've not worked with them. That the heads of Apple of the studio that, that makes the content, uh, sorry, of the service, were the heads of a seller of Sony mm-hmm. as a studio. And so a lot of their projects really do seem to be logline pitch heavy. 
here are the actors that are going to take you to a world you've never seen before, and we're going to go to the ends of space and the ends of time to tell you what is Foundation. Yeah, right. Okay. But then someone has to get in under the hood and make a show out of that big, 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 big swing, big idea. The common thread to me between Foundation and um, Invasion and Extrapolations even to a degree and um, Severance even, which obviously is a very successful program, and this— are that they are enormously top-heavy. They are enormously devoted to world-building and production design and to varying degrees have left me wanting on a very core human level, which is, boy, Rebecca Ferguson lives in a weird world. Let her tell me about it. Right. Don't lecture me. Show me. And that was really my my, my Severance my is another of example show. of a show of a plot versus story show where I actually prefer the plot. Or like I I, mm-hmm. I got I know what like the sort of overarching themes of success of severance are and like the idea of like separating your brain from like these two different mm-hmm. parts of your life, but I actually really just want to know what's up with the goats. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I think one of the things that for inter- will be interesting for me in season two is what is the show interested in? What is Ben Stiller and Dan Erickson and 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 even you know Adam Scott? What are they interested in? Mm-hmm. And season two will be the put up or shut up in a way of like okay. You certainly got our attention, and you did some beautiful, memorable stuff. But what is? But where are we going with it? And this one, there are other elements that kind of bump. That it's not bum me out because I think this is a, this is not a bad show. We should have said that at the I beginning. I just want to say, so I, I don't like doing this, but I watched the yeah. third episode, and the third episode is good. Yeah, the ideas are good. The people are good. Like, but there's there are elements that 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 I bumped on. Um, the biggest being that absolute computer normie pulling Rebecca Ferguson. Like, I know society's collapsed, but like, come on. I'm not buying, I'm out. Yeah. I bumped on that. Do you Do you have any shows, because this, you know what it kind of reminds me of is the way I, I, I was honestly obsessed with Battlestar mm-hmm. when it was on the Ronald Moore Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, Did you, do you have any shows over the years that you're like, I'm just like really here for like the core story that is being told mm-hmm. and not like what it means to TV or what it's trying to say about life or whatever. It's just like, I only care about the mechanics of what's happening. Yeah. The League. I love you. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I absolutely know what you mean. I can't off the top of my head because I think that I, I, I'm spoiled. Like, I, my brain immediately went to things Americans. that did, but that did both. The Americans? No, because what I, I for me, when I was reviewing that show, I, was, I, I thought it was interesting about marriage. Yeah. Like I, it was. So you did like the story. I, I did like the story, but it was the emotional. The story was just the frame. But no, the story is the marriage. The plot is oh, the spies. Oh, 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 you know what me. I mean? Yeah, but that 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 was get you get you someone who can do both. Sure. You know, and Lost for me was that too. But Lost built up. I love Lost. a role player. You know what I mean? I love a corner three guy. What can I say? DJ Tucker. Yeah. Um, the thing that I that I bumped on with this was that there are elements of this presentation that felt so of just where we are with TV right now. Like not, nothing about the show is AI. I'm sorry, it's the hot thing to say. But like the casting did feel like, like, hey, chat GPT, who are the most famous people we could get for these parts that will accept the salary and these shooting conditions? Mm-hmm. David Oyewolo, a really good actor. Rashida Jones, a really great actor and like lovely presence and gives you something different, a warmth, which I think is what they were going for. Objectively for me, they have no chemistry. And I did not buy an episode devoted to them just boning all the time in pursuit of a baby. Like, I just, I didn't buy it. I didn't feel them, their connection as performers. Yeah. That is something that can happen in casting. You can work around it. But similarly, like, well, Tim Robbins and Common are on the show. 
you know who's the person who popped on the show other than Rebecca Ferguson is, is Will Patton. Yeah. Playing a deputy. I'm like, that guy has lived in a place. Sure. And I am interested in the place that made him that way. It's not, here are some famous people fronting these archetypes. You know, it, that, that is an issue. Similarly, like, it's a dystopia. So everyone's wearing beige and kind of humorless. But it's not a dystopia because everybody is sort of present and accounted for and taken care of. Like, you know what I yes, mean? Like, no, there's, it, there's some elements of it where there's, I think I like the fact that it is as of so, so far, even though there's some like judicial is listening to you and this mm-hmm. is happening and this is happening. It's for the most part, like, it's about the human desire to know rather than it is about fighting oppression. I agree with you. And I think that I'm sympathetic. I'm, I, think, I think I'm just, I'm aligned with you just coming at it from a different place, which is, once again, the pressures on a project like this to communicate so fucking much leaves no air and no real estate to do the things that, you know, I'm more interested in personally as a viewer. But I think that probably the creatives are interested in. Interested in. There's no room yet for it to be weird or specific, or surprising, or for a character to just be doing something to be zagging instead of zigging towards plot. Yeah. Right? And and I'm interested in the idea that the third episode will give you more of that, and ultimately in the fact that Apple, because this is all a lark, will give you the space. Yeah. So this could be, you know, I, I think we should hit this harder. Like, this could be a very different show in episodes six, seven, eight, nine, or season two. There's a lot of source material and there's a lot of goodwill and good talent behind it. But it does. I did want to talk about it because it does feel like a very 2023 type of thing. Yeah, I got to find out what this fucking silo is, man. Hey, from what I gather... I'll let you know. No one knows who built it. You know what I mean? <laughs> also, there's, there's a little... Speaking of, there's one thing that I wondered if you were going to bump on, which is like, there's a little unfrozen caveman lawyer. Well, they, there's like, a bunch of like, they understand how to do certain things and then they'll be like, this Pez dispenser, what is this? Or they have computers that are all like the same Apple IIc that I had in elementary school and I wasn't reading Dune. But then they'll be like, this machine device with a, with a lens. Well, this can't be like what we're looking at the dystopia through. Right. What is this box? I'm just a man in a silo. <sighs> okay. Um, before we go, do you, do you okay. think, would you like to live in a place where there was just a buffet breakfast every morning? It did remind me of being in production. Well, it's funny you should mention that. I think that when I'm at a hotel yeah. and they offer that mm-hmm. and I'm like, it's, it's go time for me. Yeah. I love a continental breakfast. Are you like Hugo in succession? Do you just like load up with the Cinnabons? No, I go and I get granola yogurt and like a banana and a coffee That's and I'm like $45. slingshot out of like, but if I'm already, if it's included, oh, you know, sure. I love that. I mean, the the best thing about making a television show is that every morning when you get to work, there's just tents of food. And yeah. you'd be like, I would like breakfast tacos, please. And they were like, certainly. That's amazing. That is really why <laughs> we got to get back to work and hash this out. I've got a breakfast a, taco in years. Can you get years. that on the sign? <laughs> it's, luckily for the guild, the signs are all written. Um, we, we should go. But I want to talk about Top Chef for a second. Oh, yeah. Okay. So this is going out on Thursday. So the subsequent episode of Top Chef, the, the episode after Restaurant Wars, will have aired tonight. I have not seen it. I have not either. But I, and we, we may have to get Kaya involved here because I think we have a lot of opinions in here. Yeah. Um, this has been a time of great iteration for mm. game shows and for reality competition shows. Okay. Uh, I'm having a lot of problems with Survivor this season. You've been alluding to this. Um, part of it is that I feel like there's a lot of people on Survivor that are Survivor experts now, mm. and they've watched 25 seasons. They know all of the challenges. They've practiced them. There's a kid on this show who builds 
3D models of puzzles that he's going to need to be solving. That's like crazy. he's like a NASA student or something or a NASA kid. And I just feel like there's they've they've kind of like they have to keep changing the show to keep it fresh, to keep challenging the players. And now they've kind of gotten to this point where there's like 55 idols in play and fake idols and idols that are only good for like a certain amount of tribe, uh, tribal councils. It doesn't matter. I know you don't watch Survivor. My point is, is that I went into Restaurant Wars mm-hmm. and when they were like, we're tweaking it a little bit this year, I was just like, come on. Mm-hmm. This is one of the, the few good things. It's pure. It's the World Series, man. It's just like... You gotta have front of the house. Get rid of the. You gotta have a moment where somebody fucks up front of the house. Mm -hmm. You gotta have somebody who's really good at front of the house. You gotta have one person who's like, I bought candles for the restaurant. Yeah, come on. And instead, they do. uh, They cooked at Core by Claire Smith. Claire Smith, three star Michelin. And I think you could make the argument Mm -hmm. that Buddha is this like inflection point where Buddha's not only an incredibly talented chef, he is a masterful top chef player. What he's done in the last two weeks is breathtaking yeah. in terms of just separating from the past. Did you notice that a couple of weeks ago he casually mentioned that he brought $1,000 worth of molds with him mm-hmm. to Top Chef? Yeah. I mean, he's playing a different game than some of these other chefs are where like Tom is like, I would make tomatoes twice. I mean, it's, he, it was, but, he's, but he's also, <laughs> that, that was great, by the way. I, I do want to acknowledge your German accent. Um, it's not just that. It's that how he is using the show, not just how the show is using him in that he is relatively young and has hopped around. He worked for Claire Smith at Restaurant Gordon Ramsay in mm-hmm. London. He's done the staging and the educating, and he's working at this sort of, I mean, I haven't lived in New York in a few years, but there's this like weird caviar restaurant in the Upper East Side that he's the chef at. But really what he's doing is he's he, he's making himself. He's using this as a opportunity. Like a lot of the chefs, you know, have had restaurants or have had success and Someone talked them into this, or they they're like a Mar and Nicole. They're kind of maybe in the back end of their, the back half of their careers or whatever. But they're trying again. Yeah, Buddha is like this. This is my career. Like he intentionally did it two years in a row because he knows what it is doing for him as a springboard, and he knows this is his skill set. And his skill set, again, like Sarah is amazing on this show, and I love that she's made it this far. And yeah. I'm also really interested in the fact that a lot of the the Amer- like that Amara is still on the show because yeah. you sort of discount them because they're like, well, they've become TV personalities, but their but their unique set of skills is really aligned with this. But like, Sarah is successful regardless because she has her fiefdom and she has a successful restaurant. Yeah, in it, right. Buddha is empire building for the future. I don't think he wants to just have like a neighborhood restaurant. But he like, is a, but, he is a victorious brand. But could Buddha become? like the Matt Amodio of Top Chef. Like, could Buddha do something? Like, Top Chef doesn't typically, like, have goats. Like, they have great seasons by people. There's, like, people who are legendary because they've been on a couple of times. They have people who have been uh, uh, amazing performers. But Buddha's about... To, I Look, Buddha seems to be getting the champion cut, at least to me. Yeah. Um, And is on a run right now, which would put him going essentially back to back. I, I, I'm really interested in that. I don't, I'm not ready to crown him yet. I'm not, and, and, but, I, and I know that they can do the finale and they can be like, the finale is brought to you by Chipotle where you'll make a burrito bowl. And you should see the Ritz crackers still hanging out in the <laughs> stew room. Uh, but but I, when we get closer to the end of the season, I, am, I would like to talk about like what his arc is because there are, there are a couple that have been, a couple paths to either success or contentment or whatever taken by past Top Chef champions. Um, and a lot of them have reached a place where it's like, I don't want to cook in restaurants. Yeah. Like I want to be on TV and be like, like Brooke or Richard Blaze. Like I'll have my hand in a couple of mm-hmm. places, but I'll be on TV and I'll empire build and I'll have a happier, healthier balance in my life. But then there's Kwame 
who didn't win, um, but then came back as a judge and you know has written books and is a cultural force, but also very intentionally has opened a restaurant at Lincoln Center in New York that was just named the best restaurant in New York City. Mm. That old brick and mortar kind of thing clearly still matters. Yeah. And I don't know if Buddha's on that uh, uh, path or not. But the thing that I think we should talk... Well, sorry, here's we, the controversial we, we part. So, okay, so Restaurant Wars was this week. Buddha won Restaurant Wars. But that's not what I think people are talking about after Restaurant mm-hmm. Wars. What's different is that they made it into what is traditionally like the team, each team is responsible for an entire restaurant. Their entire, the decor, the vibe, the staffing, like how the staff interacts with the diners, the seating, um, the hosting, and then also service in front and, and the cooking. Mm-hmm. In this, they made it largely, these people are all cooking in front of us at a chef's table mm-hmm. and everything else is being more or less handled by the Claire Smith team. By the staff of a three-star Michelin restaurant. Now, I would say Buddha's uh, United Kingdom team, I think it was called, mm-hmm. they obviously... or something? Yeah, yeah. United, whatever UK, it was. The UK. They had like a more comprehensive idea or... To, they have a more total conception of their con- like idea and they interacted much more deeply with staff and obviously had like a like a bible to give them mm-hmm. about how to like prepare food how to deliver the food and everything and roots the team that lost was like a little bit more like we're cooking from our culinary roots and we're just going to throw together these five dishes but it's huge that this whole front of the house part which has always traditionally been a restaurant mm-hmm. wars thing was removed and i thought it was cool you know, I know that I'm saying like, oh, I think they're changing too much stuff about game shows, but I did think it was cool. I just think it really played to the people like Buddha's I, skills. Yeah, I thought it was a huge mistake in terms of robbing robbing us of something. Watching the chefs, particularly on this global all-star season, cook has been great. It that It's going to be good. Yeah. But this was a normal challenge. This did not feel like Restaurant Wars. It felt like this week you're taking over the kitchen of a three-star restaurant and you're going to serve the guests. That's a That's just week eight or whatever. It was not special for that reason. And it did not change their the pressure on them. What it did instead was, once again, there's there's these weeks where you're like, have any of you seen Top Chef, let alone right, one it? She's like, I'm going to make tortellini. It's just not even that. It's just like, our theme is going to be no theme. We just all had backgrounds. Yeah. You lost. It was over. So yeah. that drama was already and gone. And then you left your vegetables at the store. <laughs> I mean, but already they lost. And then they lost again because we saw they didn't even have their basket of food. But like, so then the rest of the episode was really just, is Buddha taking on too much? And the answer was very quickly, no. Yeah. And then it was over. So it robbed us of something, I think, from that regard. Watching them cook at a high level is never going to be a bad It's also, I would say, I don't think Buddha would have been doing front of the house. But I would say one of the things you can see over the course of the season is Buddha does not like to be criticized. No. And so if he had been confronted with, hey, we've been waiting for our food or... Mm -hmm. Is there like more jus that's supposed to come on this lamb or, you know, what, what, that was Ali's, right? Like, yes, that was the, the, and Tom got up. Yeah. And Tom got up to inspect it, which I also thought was a bit odd. I mean, I don't imagine you can do that at craft, right? Uh, we should try it. <laughs> I'm sure he'd love it because Tom, Tom seems warm and cuddly too. Okay. So I was into the, the twist, but am a little bit of a, you know, I'm nervous about like where everything is going because everybody keeps changing everything on me. And if I'm watching these shows, it is, it was an odd misstep for a show that historically over 20 seasons has learned from its mistakes of breaking things that mm-hmm. weren't bro- of, of fixing things that aren't broken. You know, like famously with the finale that turned into Iron Chef and they were like, nope, not doing that again. And you didn't like it. You didn't like the, the way they set up Restaurant Worlds, Wars. I enjoyed the episode. 
but I felt I thought it was a mistake for the the what the game is. All right, McMullen. What did what did Kai? Yeah. Yeah, I'm Team Andy. I didn't really. I think there was not enough stress. Everything went too smoothly. There was no incompetent waiters or staff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was no like, oh shit, we have like this table set down. You haven't gone and greeted them yet. You haven't like talked to the like judges. I guess the critic twist. We should talk about that. It was cool, but it was more like he was just a delightful character. He didn't wind up like... If I could have... I just want to be more like that guy. And that (laughs) guy has... That guy has a sick life. Immaculate swag. Amazing look. Yeah. uh, And then just like seems to just be delighted by London's culinary offerings. He's like, that's that's, that's delightful, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, oh, he's just just so excited when he came in. He's like, oh, delicious. Yeah. I was like, that's great. What a life. That's quite Um, good, isn't it? Great. Do you think that though... Like some of that front of the house stuff to me sometimes feels like when they're like, well, you've gotten this far and now we're going to have you do a minions challenge and that's going to somehow eliminate one of our guys. It's like front of the house to me, I get I get why it's important in restaurants, but it's called top chef, not top host. First of all, this is great podcasting. <laughs> I'm really impressed by this. Yes, but like keeping with this minions example, it's like <laughs> if you're being a chef, then you're probably working a restaurant in you should know how to wor- a restaurant works from top to bottom. That's true. And, and I think that's interesting to the viewer too, that that mm-hmm. being, and it, it does speak to the larger mission of Top Chef. It even dovetails with what we were saying about Buddha's future, which is that they have to do more than what they did the other week, which was, you know, shuck 12 oysters and also peel and devein these shrimp. Like you have to have those skills and management skills. I thought that skills. was awesome though. Yeah, that was thing. a great challenge. <laughs> but, but the mise en place, the Fast mise en... and the Furious challenge. That was fast fun. Fast and Furious, Jesus Christ. <laughs> that, that was a weak point for me. But also it was a weak point because I like that as a uh, quick, quick fire. fire. And yeah. then the fact that they were just trapped in the studio again, that felt like, do that in the COVID years, yeah. guys. You're in London. But to the point here, yeah, like we saw a little bit of the not seeing the big picture, both in the poor conception concept for the whole restaurant, but also the way they were like, let's make it easy on ourselves by only seat, seating six people in the beginning. Right. But that never came and back to bite anyone totally because overwhelmed. A, the judges just swanned right into the chef's table. They weren't made to wait at the host stand. So they didn't That's feel right. the effect yeah. of that. Um, that's why I think they brought the critic in was that on the off chance that the critic's food didn't come. And I think he did say like, oh, it's been paced. They were like, oh, there's a long gap between the the first first and second courses. You know who can make a long gap between courses disappear? The fucking top flight staff of a world-class restaurant who's walking around covering the chef's asses. And like the head waiter who came down and met with them, I I, I went to her LinkedIn page and she's like, (laughs) I make it my mission to travel the world and work in the finest restaurants and elevate the customer experience. So, yeah, they got a few extra splashes of Turlato. You know what I mean? Like, they were yeah, fine. Yeah. They it, were doing it good. Didn't, it didn't touch the judges. They were inoculated from the actual experience of the challenge. All things being equal, do you agree with me about Buddha's, like, the Vegas favorite? I would say it's between Buddha and Amir right now. Amar. Amar. Yeah. yeah. Amar, Amar's role, we should... Amar, I'm stunned by Amar in this season. Like, I think... I slept on him in his California season and because he's just like, I'm a nice guy. Like you kind of forget. I love yeah. that he's, crush it. he's like, obviously like everybody's favorite dude. He seems like yeah. a great guy. He's opening in DTLA. We should go. Oh, okay. But he also has that we'll like veteran dinner? presence yeah. where he's just like, you guys, it's on me. But that he's like, he is able to be a good teammate and a good competitor uh-huh. and, and crush it both like in terms of the practical, but also the conceptual is just really impressive. Yeah, I mean, another thing with this episode is like when the teams were picked and it was Amar, Buddha, Sarah, and it Ali. It's like, that's done. I would have liked to have seen Tom on Buddha's team yeah. just to see what would have happened with those two because Tom 
Tom is chaos energy now. Yeah. Like, I can't believe Tom's still on the show. I, I don't know if you guys are less chance kitcheners, but I think I, and I'm not going to spoil what's happening, but I think Charbel. You I think, think Charbel is coming, coming back? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that, that the Charbel Ali, not to lump them in because they, they were on the same version of Top Chef, the Middle East and North Africa, but like, I think those guys are serious. They haven't had a challenge in a minute that was able to really like showcase their skills. I feel like they've kind of had a couple in a row that Buddha and Amar have been I, a little bit more. Yeah. Not that this is a battle for the soul of Top Chef, <laughs> the most important election of our lifetimes. But if it was like a Buddha Amar finale, considering what, I, right? But if it came down, uh, who knows? Maybe it's maybe they're going to change that too. But if it was, and they were at least the two you know, uh, leading contenders, let's say. I'm not sure who the third would be in this scenario. That would be really interesting because the version, of what the show seems to be doing this season favors Buddha a million percent in terms of like the emphasis yeah. on fine dining yeah. and execution and creativity. Yeah, because sometimes they're like, oh, we want you to cook from the heart. Like, why are you being so technical? And it's like, this season they seem to be like, Buddha, you're it, fucking it, killing it. I if think they this go season to the is countries. a little bit more meta overall yeah. just because it's an all-star Yeah, And they've all season. done it before. Yeah. yeah. They're pushing each other. It's good. But it, it is... Uh, if you had polled me, which you guys, you monsters didn't, and I was here uh, at the beginning of the season, I would have, and if, you, if, if we had done like broadly, like who's Favorites. the bottom yeah. trio, yeah. and I apologize for this, I was wrong. I would have thought Amar and Sarah would have been in the bottom, not, not because they're not great chefs or great competitors, but because I was like, oh, we're going to be on the fucking, it's, this a, Michelin, se- this it's show a Michelin is, season. Yeah, this yeah. show has really gotten rid of people who try to do things like that either they they don't have the time to do so like Nicole trying to do all this fresh pasta that didn't work yeah. out Dawn obviously or, or Dawn being like I'm going to figure it out as yeah, I go you can't you, figure you out can't do it this uh, we can wrap it up there I do want to say this is like the hour plus moment mm. that uh, wait, it's, so it's not really like timely recommendation but I've been watching Jury Duty Oh, on freebie. I love Jury Duty. And Jury Duty is the funniest show I've seen since Southside. And it is like probably it's, my favorite thing that I've seen this it's year. It's really good. Yeah. It's really the fun. F- favorite wow. new show. So this is what you guys were doing instead of just interviewing me about my thoughts on Top Chef. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we can hash this out at dinner. Um, thanks for listening. Thanks to Kaya McMullen uh, for weighing in on Top Chef and for uh, scoring a dinner at a Mars DTLA restaurant. And, and producing the watch. And producing the watch. Yeah. Uh, we'll be back on Sunday night after Succession. It's a doozy. And then we'll be back next week with, um, gosh, maybe some cross-continental podcasting, I guess. Go Sixers. 